What a powerful song we just sang. And it raises an interesting question for us, and that is, does, does Jesus Christ command your destiny? Is he in control of your life? You know, it's easy to come to an Easter service and sing songs about the resurrection and yet fail to see the significance of the resurrection for our own lives and what it means. And it's my hope and prayer this morning as we look at God's word that God will make it clear to us the significance and the power of his resurrection in our lives so that we will be ruined for any other pursuit. Um, because that's, that's, this is what God has created us for. And we can't afford to ignore that. The reality is, though, we live in a day and an age where there's a great deal of skepticism about the resurrection. And um, Christians today often face a lot of ridicule. And it's not unusual uh, to turn on the TV and hear some pundit talking about why it's so foolish for us to believe uh, in the Lord Jesus and especially in his resurrection. Uh, but here's, here's the good news. We know the truth and a lot of other people have come to know the truth as they have investigated the claims of Christ. Now, most of us have not spent hours and weeks and months and years doing that, but there have been many people who have. Many people who have sought to disprove the resurrection only to be convinced of it by the weight of the evidence. Josh McDowell was one such person. Spent two years traveling in Europe, interviewing the so-called experts, trying to find holes in the resurrection story, only to come to faith as a result of his investigation. And in particular, in looking at the, at the resurrection, he says, he says this, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever fostered upon the minds of men. Or, it is the most fantastic fact of history. See, there's no in-between. There's, there's, there's no middle ground here. Either Jesus really rose from the dead or he didn't. We're going to talk about that here this morning. There, there have been countless skeptics who have held that view that Christ uh, didn't rise from the dead. Many who have sought to disprove the resurrection who have found that, again, the evidence to be overwhelming. Billy Graham once rightly said that there is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead that, than there was that Julius Caesar ever lived or that Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. Most of us don't realize that the evidence for Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection is found in sources outside of the Bible. You can go to Jewish and Roman historians to read about it. But for us here in 2023, I think it's a good reminder that in an age of skepticism, we can be confident in Jesus' resurrection and of our own 
and that our labor as followers of Christ is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Encourage the fainthearted. Strengthen the feeble. Lord, lead those who are skeptical of you and your resurrection. Lead them to the cross. Lead them to the empty tomb where they might see you in all your glory and surrender their lives to you even this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, and for those of you that don't have a Bible, I'll put it up on screen for you. This is considered the quintessential passage on the resurrection in uh, the New Testament epistles. And the apostle Paul begins the chapter by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church, as you know, um, was not a perfect church, far from it. It had lots of problems, lots of issues, and Paul is addressing some of them here in this particular chapter, and he begins by reminding them of the gospel that he had preached to them. So the first question we should ask ourselves is, what is the gospel? What, what does the word gospel mean? Maybe we ought to start there. Well, it comes from a Greek word, euangelion, and it simply means good news or good tidings. It is a good message, if you would. And I want you to notice the phrases in our text, the phrases, which you received, in which you stand, and if you hold fast too. You see, the gospel is only good news or good tidings for those who receive it and for those who continue to believe it. And one receives the gospel, the good news, by believing the gospel message, which we'll get to in a minute. The good news is not received through some subjective experience, through some inward journey into the self to find yourself. It's not, it's not discovered through some religious ritual or rite of passage like baptism or confirmation. Rather, it is in, trust, in trusting in and relying upon the objective truth that the message communicates. There is a message that communicates objective truth. And that is what we put our faith in. We believe the content of the gospel message. And in this case, it's Paul's preaching. And it's by believing the gospel, believing the good news, that we're saved from our sins and saved unto eternal life. Now, the context here, I think, helps clarify something that has confused some people, and that's the phrase, unless you believed in vain. 
Our, our thoughts immediately kind of go to, well, that means you can kind of believe and then not believe. And, you know, it's like be saved and then not be saved. And that's not what Paul is saying here. He is referring to those who have failed to continue to believe, thus demonstrating that they never really did. I hope to make that point clear here. And I, and I think it, it, we need to address this today because there is a growing number of Christian celebrities who are priding themselves on deconstructing the Christian faith. Maybe you've not heard that term before, deconstructionism. You know, you have some well-known um, Christian authors and pastors who have preached the gospel for years who now, upon hindsight, they're thinking, well, maybe things aren't exactly the way that I had believed them to be. And so they take apart the Christian faith. And then they try to kind of put it back together in a way that, is, that serves their liking. Don't, don't be worried about that. The Bible told us that there would be people like that in fact, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. See, true faith perseveres. It's not wishy-washy. It's not I believe one minute, I disbelieve the next. That's not biblical faith. We're not talking about mere intellectual assent. That, oh yeah, I recognize this or I recognize that or I believe this. It goes to the core of our being. It's transformative. So if at the end of the day we find that there is no transformation, no lasting transformation, then we know that we have not truly believed. And in addition to this, the word vain that you see there in verse 2 means to no avail or to no purpose. It means to be without reason or haphazardly or without careful thought. So if you profess to have faith in Christ, if you profess to believe the gospel, but have not considered what the gospel implies and demands of your life, you have not truly believed. You, you've believed on a surface level. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, consider the cost. There is a cost involved in following Jesus. Just ask the martyrs. And they'll tell you about the cost. There is a price to be paid for being a Christ follower. I think it's incredibly worth it. But there is a price to be paid. And so we should not enter into a seeming relationship with Jesus if we don't understand the implications of the cross and the resurrection for our lives Many people, like I said, believe the gospel on a, on a surface level. And it kind of brings to mind the parable of the seed and the sower, doesn't it? For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, Jesus likened the, the, the word of God to seed that was sown. And it was sown in four different types of ground. 
You had the hard ground, the, the hard impenetrable ground, and the sea just kind of lay right on top of it. And, and what happens? The birds of the air come, snatch it away before it has a chance to take root. And then there was seed that was sown along the rocks and seed that was sown amongst the thorns and the worries of this world and the cares of this world choked out the life of the seed so that it wasn't able to, to bear fruit. It wasn't able to grow. But then there was a soil, the good soil, where the seed went into it and it took root and it sprouted up. That's the kind of heart that we need. That's the kind of heart that the gospel bears fruit in. Not the kind where, you know, the, the God's word, his message gets sprinkled on us at Christmas and Easter. Right? It's got to take root in our hearts. Praying a prayer as a young child or as an adult for that matter. God isn't interested in, in, in salvation prayers. He's interested in our heart. He's not interested in us in merely, you know, saying, you know, a glib, trite prayer if there's no contrition in the heart, if there's no genuine repentance. He, he, he wants to be Lord and Savior of our life, and He is either Lord or He's not. If we believe, truly believe, we will continue to believe otherwise our belief is in vain. So this kind of answers the question about, you know, what, what does the word gospel mean? But what exactly is the gospel? What is the good news that Paul has preached to them? Well, he summarizes it for us in what appears to be an early church creed in verses 3 and 4. Let's take a look at it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance... Now, now don't, don't gloss over that statement. What Paul is about to tell the Corinthians and us is not a minor doctrine. It's not a side issue. It's not something that we can agree to disagree on. This is of first importance. It is of primary importance. It is a fundamental and essential issue. So... What was it? What did Paul deliver that was of first importance? Well, you see it enumerated for us there. First, Christ died for our sins. That's the first part of the gospel. And people have gone to great lengths to try to disprove uh, the resurrection. And of course, one way to do that is to somehow assert that Jesus didn't really die. And they, they've come up with, you know, you think we live in a day and an age today with crazy conspiracy theories? They had them back then. And they continue to have them. Some suggest that Jesus had a doppelganger, that, that he had a, a body double that, that was crucified in, in his place. And, and the first thing I thought of was, I wonder who they got to volunteer for that job. <laughs> 
Some foolishly claim that Jesus merely swooned, that he merely fainted, that he didn't really die on the cross. I mean, if, if some of these theories weren't so ridiculous, um, it, but you, 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 you have to address them because people believe these things. It's like they check their brains at the door. And, it, and it's like, hey, wait a minute. Let, let's back up a little bit. You're telling me that Jesus, who had been arrested and then beaten beyond recognition, then flogged with a cat of nine tails, where his skin, his flesh, his muscles were ripped off of his back, where he just about died from that, and then a, a huge crown of thorns jammed upon his skull. Then he has to carry this huge wooden cross all the way to Calvary. Then there he is nailed to that cross with what amounts to the size of railroad spikes through his hands and through his feet. And there for hours he hangs and then Finally, a spear is thrust into his side, into his heart, where blood and water flowed. And then the Roman executioners, who were experts in their field, pronounce him dead. And they take him down off the cross. And then they bury him in a tomb. It's, it's, it's almost unbelievable that you even have to counteract that. What do you mean, Jesus swooned, that he fainted. Are you being for real? So a group of doctors, not too, too long ago, decided, well, let's take a look at the crucifixion of Christ from a medical perspective. And so these particular um, doctors published a nine-page finding in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Their conclusion? Death resulted primarily for, from hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Duh. <laughs> you know, Jesus, we, we need to be clear on this. Because if we're not clear that Jesus truly died, then we're not going to believe in the resurrection, right? So before you can believe in the resurrection, you have to believe that Jesus died. Jesus didn't have a near-death experience. He rose from the dead. Big difference. We're celebrating the resurrection this morning, not the resuscitation. Belief in the resurrection is foolish unless Jesus truly died. But notice that Paul goes on to say that not only did Jesus die for our sins, he died in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus' death, in other words, was not a cosmic blunder. It wasn't a tragedy. It was a triumph. This was all a part of God's preordained plan to save you and me to rescue us from our sins. It was foretold in the Old Testament as early as Genesis chapter 3. Jesus died for our sins. Now, I have to confess to you, I spent years going to church, and I didn't ever really understand what that meant. 
What do you mean Jesus died for my sins? In, in short, he took my place. I deserved to die. What, what the scripture says is, is, is that the wages of sin is death. What we earn and what we deserve by our sin or our rebellion against God and his authority for our lives is eternal separation from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. That's what we deserve. But Jesus came to earth and he took the sins of the world upon himself. He took my sins and he took your sins and he bore the wrath of his father against sin so that we wouldn't have to. He took our punishment. My, my daughter Ella is here this morning. And I may have mentioned to you in the past when, when uh, Ella, I, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but when Ella misbehaved, um, sometimes she deserved a spanking. And I can remember being in her room, laying her over my lap, hand comes up, you know, and I'm telling, explaining to her, Ella, you know what you did was wrong. You know you deserve a spanking. And, you know, she would just stare at me with these, uh, she wouldn't say a word, you know. And, uh, and I, I would raise my hand up, and she's preparing herself for a big whelp right on her, right on her hiney. And I come down, and I go, and I hit myself. I hit my own leg. And she looks at me like, huh, what? And I was trying to communicate to her this gospel truth, that just as I took her spanking for her, Jesus took her punishment at the cross for her sin. He bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It wasn't a cosmic blunder. It was a triumph. Jesus defeated death. He defeated the devil at the cross. And he broke the power of sin and death over his life, over our lives by rising from the cross, from the, from the grave. But before you can get to the resurrection, you have to go through the tomb. And that's the second thing that Paul mentions here, that he was buried. Christ died in accordance with the scriptures for our sins. He was buried. Now, you don't normally bury people who are still breathing, right? Not a good practice. So this is further evidence that Jesus truly died. Add to that, he was wrapped up like a mummy, with linen cloths and about 75 pounds of ointment. Again, the idea of Jesus merely fainting or swooning and then being able to somehow unravel himself and walk out of the tomb is ridiculous. And add to that, that he was in a sealed tomb with Roman guards placed by. And you know what happened for three days? Absolutely nothing. Jesus didn't budge for three days. It looked like it was over. And then the first day of the week came. And something happened. 
there was a great earthquake and an angel rolled away the stone and Jesus got up, passed through his burial cloths and walked out of the tomb. This brings us to Paul's third aspect of the gospel, and that is that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Just as Jesus' death was foretold in the Old Testament by the prophets hundreds of years, thousands of years before his death, so too was his resurrection. In rising from the dead, Jesus defeated death and the devil. He rose victoriously that first Easter morning, never to die again. Folks, what we need to understand that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. That is the gospel message. But it is only when we truly believe it that our lives are changed. Eternal Life begins the moment a person believes the gospel, truly believes it. We don't, don't get this misguided notion that somehow we believe this because somehow we're trying to make sense of life and death. That somehow there's this, just, there's this need to believe and so we're willing to kind of check our brains at the door and we just kind of embrace this wild, fanciful story recorded in the scriptures because we, we, we feel like we need to. That without it, life just doesn't seem to make sense. The truth is we believe it because it's true. Because it really happened the gospel is what sustains us through life's difficulties. It is what gives meaning to our suffering and it renders powerless death itself. You know, simply believing something to be true doesn't make it true. People believe all sorts of weird stuff. But you've got to go outside of yourself into the very real world and test your beliefs. Do they hold water? Are they sufficient enough for you to build your life on it? Most people build their lives on sinking sand. We build our lives on the rock, on the truth of Jesus Christ. And I believe this truth, I believe the resurrection is true. I believe it so much. I believe it more than I believe that I'm here speaking to you this morning. That's how much I believe it to be true. The evidence is overwhelming. And I don't have time to give you all the evidence this morning, and you don't want to hear it anyway. So let me just share with you what Paul says here in verses 5 through 11. Speaking of the resurrection, he says, that he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they died, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, don't miss the significance of what Paul is saying here. You know, in, in our legal system, testimony, eyewitness testimony is considered direct testimony. Or I, I think, as you say, a prima facie testimony. It's accepted in a court of law. If you, non-hearsay, it's non-hearsay evidence. Hearsay, you know, you're referring to somebody else who saw something or said something. This is no, I saw, I witnessed, I heard. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. There were so many witnesses to behold it that if we do in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and we dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. And when Paul said, most of whom who are still alive, what he was doing was he was inviting investigation. In other words, it's as if he was saying, hey, don't just take my word for it. Ask them. A whole bunch of them are still alive. You can go knock on their door and ask them. And you would think that if it was a lie, somebody amongst this group of 500 plus people would have cracked under the pressure and would have said, yeah, everything that Paul said, nah, it wasn't right, didn't happen. No such record exists Paul himself was an eyewitness when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So let me ask you, how else do you explain Paul's transformation? How does he go from being a, a, a religious zealot who persecuted the church of God to being a mighty, bold proclaimer of the gospel that he sought to put down? For that matter, how do you explain the changed lives of the disciples? I mean, they were all in hiding after Jesus was crucified. And then the next thing you know, they're out there in public proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. And they suffered beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, stonings, beheadings. They all died martyrs' deaths except for John, who was exiled on the island of Patmos. Sir Lionel LeCou is considered to be the greatest attorney who ever lived, winning more murder trials than anyone else in history. I think at one point he won 245 consecutive murder trials. He was skeptical of the resurrection, but he was challenged to apply his legal acumen and his powers of analysis to the resurrection. He spent years studying the historical record. Here was his conclusion. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That, of course, has never stopped people from disbelieving. And Paul now turns his attention to, in verse 13 to those who continue to say that there was no resurrection of the dead. And his response is profound. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you hear what Paul is saying? What he's saying is is that if, if Jesus Christ didn't really rise from the dead, then you should have stayed in bed this morning. You shouldn't have gotten up to come here. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then we're wasting our time worshiping a dead Christ, and we should all get up and go home. Again, it's one or the other. And we have to wrestle with the implications of this truth for our lives. If Christ is risen, that changes everything. Not only should we get our butts out of bed every Sunday morning and into these seats, our lives should be different. The way we think, the way we talk, the way we act should be different because Christ is alive. The resurrection is not a secondary issue. It is the heart of the gospel. And how we respond to it will determine where we will spend eternity. And it will, it will determine our, our destiny. C.S. Lewis wrote in God in the Dock, one must keep on pointing out that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. If we genuinely believe that Jesus is alive, and folks, we can't afford to live for ourselves. We can't afford to pursue our own pleasures, our own desires. When you truly believe the gospel, it will change you. You will never be the same. That's why Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. That's what happened to me when I was 21. And I've never been the same. Paul put this foolish argument to rest simply with a rejoinder in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of many resurrections to come. His resurrection is what gives us the hope of our own. Those who have trusted in the risen Savior will one day exchange the perishable for the imperishable, the mortal for the immortal. And some in Corinth were asking, 
this question. It was a smokescreen. But how are the dead raised? Is it a spiritual body? A physical body? Will I still have a receding hairline, love handles, or crow's eyes? Crow's feet, excuse me. <laughs> crow's eyes. Some of you have crow's eyes. <laughs> what kind of body will we have when we're resurrected? See, this was a way of arguing against the resurrection. It reminds you, doesn't it, of the time when Jesus was asked about marriage in heaven? They were trying to trip Jesus up. You know, if there really is a, you know, resurrection, if we're really, you know, well then what happens here if this guy's married to like five different women and he gets to heaven, which, whose wife will, you know, it's foolishness. They posed a foolish question thinking somehow they would prove that the bodily resurrection can't happen. Paul responds simply this way. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning we won't all die. But we all shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Hallelujah. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have the hope of our own. One day, this pudgy, aching uh, body with bad eyesight and bad hearing and graying, thinning hair will be changed. Hallelujah. <laughs> One day Christ will come again and we will receive, we all will receive a glorified body, a body like Jesus. I don't have all the answers. Scripture doesn't give us all the answers, but that's good enough for me. And those of us who have died in Christ will be resurrected, never to die again. Those who are alive will be changed in a twinkling of an eye, and together we will forever be with the Lord. What a hope. What a promise. What a Savior. In an age of skepticism, we can be confident of Jesus' resurrection and our own, and that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So let me ask you, have you truly believed the gospel? Has your life been changed? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Or are you living for yourself, for your own pleasures, 
your own desires. Jesus thought you were worth dying for. Don't you think he's worth living for? I do. Josh McDowell was right. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most fantastic fact of history. And because he lives, we too shall live. If you're here this morning and you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ, but today you believe. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, that he rose from the dead. Today can be the day that you receive the gift of eternal life, that you receive forgiveness. All you have to do is go to him in the quietness of your own heart and say, Lord, I know that I am a sinner and I know that I have offended you and that I deserve whatever punishment comes my way, but I, I believe that you love me that you sent Jesus to die for me and my sins, that his blood was shed so that I could be forgiven. And Lord Jesus, I'm asking you today to be my Lord, to be my Savior. Come into my life. You don't have to use those exact words, but God knows your heart. So I, I plead with you this morning, if, if you came in here and you do not know Christ, understand the implications of the gospel for your life. There's no middle ground. Choose today whom you will serve. For those of us that have called upon Christ and have trusted him as our Lord and Savior, I hope you're encouraged. Um, Paul concludes this chapter with, I think, a wonderful exhortation, a wonderful piece of encouragement that I want to share with you. It's found in verse 58. He simply says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God use us all all those who believe to lead others to the Savior and to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this morning, for this resurrection morn. But the truth is, Lord, every day is resurrection day because you are alive and because you are alive, we too shall live. Lord, it's my prayer this morning that your Holy Spirit would work in those who are here in service, in person, those who are watching online. And Lord, I pray that you would even now draw people to yourself in saving faith and that they would have the courage to share their decision to follow you with someone else. And that, Lord, that you would ruin them for anything less than your glory. Lord, do the same for all of us. May we serve you. May we love you. May we share you with all those who need to hear. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.